Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of the Spirit of the living God who dwells within the hearts of each and every true believer and for, for the fact that he unites us together as one. Wherever we may live and in whatever situation we may find ourselves, we are brothers and sisters in Christ with those who also know you. Father, we are thankful to be a part of the kingdom of God. And as we study from the book of Judges, we pray for your divine direction. We ask that your spirit will instruct us, that we will see not only the truths that affected Israel uh, those 3,000 plus years ago, but the truths that apply equally to us today. Father, I pray your blessing throughout this uh, complex this morning as the word is proclaimed in every class and in the sanctuary. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin this morning by reading from Psalm 106, verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake, and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of their captors. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to thy name and glory in thy praise. Blessed be the God, the Lord, the God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting, let all the people say, Amen, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Between the death of Joshua and the coronation of the first king of Israel, whose name was Saul, there was a period of time that varies depending on who you talk to from 200 to 300 years. And this period of time is known as the era of the judges. The account of the events which occurred during that period are recorded in the book, therefore, which goes by that name, at least in English, the book of Judges. Now what's interesting is that this book, this, this title, it might, it might seem a little strange to us. We're accustomed to it if you've been within the uh, evangelical community for a while. But for somebody who just picks up the Bible and starts looking at it, it's a book called Judges. Now, it's going to seem a little strange. And of course, the English title for the book does not come directly from the Hebrew. Instead, it comes from the Hebrew through the Septuagint, which was the first translation of the Bible into Greek, which occurred in Alexandria, Egypt, about 200 years before Christ. And then from that into the uh, Latin Vulgate, which was translated about A.D. 400 by Jerome over there in a, in a cave in Jerusalem. I'm not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. 
And so from that, those translations, you end up with this particular word, judges. But the title of the book in Hebrew is, if you've read the bulletin, the word that you see there, Shofatim. This is the title of the book in Hebrew, Shofatim. Shofatim is a plural. Anytime you see an I-N on the transliteration of a I-M, on a transliteration of a Hebrew word, it's a plural. So what is saying is that it is the plural of the word Shofat. Now the question is, what does the word Shofat mean? Well, it's a word that you cannot translate with a single English word. Now for us, to, to me at least, if I think of a judge, I think of somebody whose primary responsibilities are judicial. You know, we, we live in America where we have the, uh, the, the tripartite division of government, right? Executive, judicial, and legislative. And we think of judges as being in the judicial branch, and that's their little uh, area of, of expertise. That's what they do. They don't mess around in the other areas, even though, of course, we find they are, do mess around in the other areas, but not technically are they supposed to. Instead, the word shofat refers to a rather unique position that was held more or less sequentially by about 12 men. And of course, as we study through the book of Judges, we'll be looking at those 12 individuals. The term shofat refers to an individual who may have had some judicial responsibilities from time to time, but that was not his primarily re primary responsibility. His primary role was that of deliverer, deliverer. And that is probably the English word that would come closest to the meaning of shofatim, deliverers. And so if this book were rendered deliverers rather than judges, it would be closer to the Hebrew meaning. Their responsibility then was not primarily judicial. Their responsibility was primarily military and administrative. And so they were more in the executive department than in the judicial department, as we would look at it today, as, as you think of these particular individuals. Now what is interesting is that in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Judges is placed exactly in the same position as it is here in our English Bible. That is, it is the seventh book from the beginning. In the Hebrew Bible, you have the Torah. You have the first five books. You know. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what the Greeks would call the Pentateuch. The Torah is the law. Well, what follows the Torah is the uh, Nevim, which are the books of the prophets. And as far as the Hebrews are concerned, the prophets were divided into two categories, the early prophets and the later prophets. And the book of Judges is the second book of the early prophets. You have Joshua and then Judges. That is the second book of what they call the early prophets. And they call it the early prophets because there is some prophetic type orientation in the book of Judges. Now the other two former prophets are Samuel and Kings. What is interesting is that uh, when the Septuagint translated the, the Hebrew Bible into, into Greek, they decided that Samuel was too long and, and Kings was too long. And so they divided them into two books. And so you got uh, what they called in the Septuagint, first and second kings and third and fourth kings. And then when they translated it into the Vulgate, they made first and second kings into first and second Samuel. So we have first second Samuel, first second kings, first second chronicles. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's a single scroll, Samuel, and a single, that is a, a single book as they view it, 
Samuel and a single one called Kings. And so those are the other two of the former prophets. Latter prophets, of course, are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12. The 12 minor prophets are all scrunched into one, well not scrunched, but they're collected into one simply called the 12. And, and then all the other parts of the Old Testament in Hebrew are, are put together in, in what is known as the Kethuvim, which is the writings. So if you look at that, you, you have the law, which is the Torah, and you have the Navim, which are the prophets, the T and the N, and the Kethuvim, which is the K, T and K. And to the Hebrews, they put an A between the, the T and the N, and an A between the, the N and the K to get the Tanakh, and that's what they call their Bible, Tanakh, the law, the prophets, the writings. And so we are looking at the second book of the former prophets. What is interesting is that nowhere in the book of Judges will you find the name of the author mentioned. However, according to the Talmud, which uh, these are the rabbinical writings, which are commentaries on scripture, the law, and so forth, which actually are mostly post-Christ. Uh, according to the Talmud, the author of Judges is Samuel, same one who wrote the book of Samuel. Now this is very possible because there is internal evidence that seems to lean in that particular direction. For example, it seems that the book was probably written not too long after the time of the crowning of Saul as the first king in Israel. In Judges chapter 17 verse 6, I, we don't need to turn there because I'll just re, uh, read a phrase. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Well, you know somebody is not going to say, in those days there was no king in Israel unless they lived in a day when there was a king in Israel, right? It's sort of like picking up a coin that says uh, that it was minted in 46 BC, right? Obviously that can't happen. And so you don't have a BC until you have an AD. So you don't talk about there not being kings until you have kings. So we know that the book was written after there was a king in Israel. And yet we're told in the first chapter of Judges that the Jebusites still lived in Jerusalem. Well, the Jebusites were not finally driven out of Jerusalem until the days of David the king, early in his reign. And so that kind of sandwiches the writing of the book right between the crowning of Saul, sometime after the crowning of Saul, and before David captures Jerusalem. So that crunches it right down in the latter part of the 11th century before Christ. Now, what is interesting about that is it's the time of Samuel. Samuel was a priest. Samuel was a prophet. Samuel was the anointer of Saul, the anointer of David as king in Israel. And so this is the time frame in which he lived, and he is the only known historical scriptural writer of that time period. I mean, David, of course, will write some Psalms, but in terms of historical writing that is in the scripture, Samuel is the only one we know about. So he is probably the leading candidate for authorship, human authorship at least, of the book of Judges. Now there is some difference of opinion as to the time period which the book of Judges covers. Have you ever studied that part? Or, do, or you know, if we read through from Joshua to Judges and, and on beyond that, we, we discover of course certain interesting information, but do we ever try to put it together chronologically? Uh, someday if you get a chance, Pick up one of the chronological Bibles, a Bible that's been put together chronologically so that the books are in the order of the events that transpired. They are not necessarily in that order in, in the Bible as we have it. Most scholars 
will agree on the approximate closing date. In other words, Judges comes to an end somewhere between maybe 1050 and 1020 BC. So it comes to an end somewhere in the latter part of the 11th century before Christ. The question is, when did it begin? What time period marks the beginning of the era of the Judges? And, and this is where the big debate rests. Generally speaking, the earliest date given by some is 1350 B.C. Now those who adhere to 1350 B.C. are those who believe in the early Exodus that Israel came out of Egypt in the later 15th century before Christ. And they adhere to maybe 1350 for the uh, beginning of the book of the era of the Judges. Those who believe in the later Exodus, that is, that Israel came out of Egypt at the, in, in the early part of the 13th century before Christ, uh, adhere to a date maybe 1250, 1240, 1230, somewhere around there, for the beginning of the book of uh, Judges. Now, the earlier date helps us to fit all of these Judges in better, especially if we try to put the Judges back to back, which I don't think we can do you know, say this judge ruled and then he died and then another judge came along. If you do all of that, you end up with a very long period of time for the book of Judges, but the chances that they overlap are very great. But it does give more time for it to fit in. But the later date actually fits the archaeological evidence and what historical evidence does uh, survive, particularly that matching the, um, the pharaohs of, um, of Egypt. Now, the writer of the book of Judges seems to have been intentional in making the book of Judges a sequel to the book of Joshua. Let me read from Joshua chapter 24 beginning at verse 28. Joshua 24, 28. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. And it came about after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnasarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, on the north of Mount Gash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now turn, if you will, to the second chapter of Judges, verse 6. And notice what it says here. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance at Timnaharis, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. You find, of course, in this passage that there is a great deal of repetition. That obviously the author of the book of Judges quoted from the book of Joshua to try to tie the two books together in the historical sequence of things. Now you will note if you did, uh, as we read through there, there was a slight difference in the name of the place where Joshua was living and where he was buried. In Joshua it's called Timnasera, in Judges it's called Timnaharis. Really, the only difference between the two 
is that Timnaharas may have been the earlier name for the place. Uh, Timnasera means the precinct remaining, the last piece of land. And you remember Joshua picked the last piece of land that seemed to be available to the tribe of Ephraim. And so the name seems to emphasize that. Timnasera means the precinct of the sun. Uh, which could have been a name given to the area earlier, although later rabbis feel that it was given as a name to remember the fact that Joshua was the man who had stood there above the valley of Aelon and commanded the sun to stand still, and so it did for 24 hours or whatever the time length was. So really, um, it's the same place, just two different renderings of the name. The transition verse is verse 10 of chapter 2. You have a repetition of uh, the words from Joshua in the first verses from 6 through 9. Then verse 10 is the transition verse. Let me read that one again. And all that generation, the, the generation of Joshua, were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Joshua's generation had experienced the great miracles of God in the wilderness and in the conquest of Canaan. Yet there arose a generation immediately after them who didn't know those miracles, nor did they know the God of Israel. Well, we're going to look at this in more detail when we study this passage, but let me just say by way of passing at this point, it seems rather clear that those who had heard the proclamation of the word through Moses in the wilderness and through Joshua as he stood there, for example, at Shechem and proclaimed the word of the Lord and had it carved in stones between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, that those very people didn't do a very good job of teaching their children or their grandchildren, these miracles, nor the God of those miracles. And I think one of the most powerful lessons that comes out of the early portion of the book of Joshua is the lesson which it in, in emphasizes to us how incredibly important it is that we as parents teach our children to fear, to love, and to obey the Lord. Amen. And that teaching must not only be by precept, and, and you know, it could be that they did teach some by precept, but it must be more by lifestyle, right? You've all heard the phrase, probably used it yourself, uh, your, your, your walk speaks so loud I can't hear your talk. I think the failure on the part of the generation of Joshua was in their walk more than in their talk. It is, of course, important for us to know that not only must we teach by precept our children about the Lord, but we must walk His faith before them so they, leave, they see the precepts lived in reality, and then we must smother the whole thing with prayer. Literally, hang in there in prayer for our kids and for our grandkids, and some of you know very much how important that is because of the experiences you've been through. The era of the judges is a very disconcerting period in the history of Israel. Under Joshua's direction, the military exploits of Israel broke the power of the Canaanites and delivered the bulk of Canaan into the hands of Israel. However, 
significant Canaanite enclaves still remained within the land of Canaan. Here was a pocket, there was a pocket, another pocket over here of Canaanites still scattered through the land of Israel. And what were these little pockets? These little pockets were sources of spiritual infection. They were sources out of which would radiate the paganism of the Canaanites and would infect the nearby Israelites and they would be drawn to it. Centuries later, there would be a great Macedonian leader by the name of Alexander. And Alexander would lead the Macedonian Greek armies in the conquest of the vast Persian Empire marching his armies clear over to modern Pakistan. Along with his army, he took a rather large crowd of camp followers. And these camp followers he planted here and there along the way. He would create what were known in, in the Greek world as poli, little communities. Little communities where the Greek lifestyle would be lived. And the idea was that he would convert the whole Persian Empire into a Greek-oriented world by example. He would put these little showcases, little communities of Greek and Macedonian people here and here and here and here. And the people around it would say, whoa, look at those people. We want to live like them. And, and therefore, that would convert the whole former Persian Empire into a, into a great Greek world. This is known as Hellenization, the expansion of, of Greek culture and Greek ways. Well, what we've got is something happening in reverse here, and that is the little pockets of Canaanites will be left all through the land where they will be festering there, and eventually they would infect Israel. And you remember from what I read in the book of Psalms, where the psalmist is recounting this period of time, and he is telling us that the Israelites went a-whoring after the uh, gods of the Canaanites, even to the place where they would sacrifice their own sons and daughters to these pagan gods. That is a horrible commitment. As we shall see, what happens throughout the book of Judges is cyclical. You have a cycle of apostasy, followed by oppression, followed by repentance of sorts, and then followed by deliverance. And the deliverance will come at the hands of a shofat, a deliverer that God would raise up, the man of the hour. God said, I choose you. And you know, like Gideon, he says, be? <laughs> Down there in the threshing floor, trying to beat out the grain, looking over the top, make sure no enemy are approaching. And he says, I'm the least, we're the least clan, and I'm the least in the clan. You're choosing me. God chose these men to be the deliverers, the shofatim. And their role was to lead Israel out of the oppression with the hope that, now when I use the word hope, we have to understand God is omniscient. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what they're going to do, but he gives them the opportunity anyway. You and me, we'd say, I know this kid's not going to do what I tell him, so I'm not even going to tell him. I'm just going to kick him out the door and do it myself, you know. And, and that, but that's not how we, the way God operates. God gives us the opportunity to serve him, even if he knows we're going to blow it. And so he did for Israel time and time again. I mean, there are 12 shofetim. That's a lot of cycles for Israel to go through. As we study this book, we're going to see that it is a book of transition. Not only in the transition that we've already noticed from the conquest to the occupation, but it's going to be a transition in, that involves social and economic issues. 
where the people of Israel will, will be transformed from a nomadic people, which they had been for 50 years, ever since they left, left Egypt, to a sedentary, primarily agricultural people. Oh yes, they would still do some herding, but their primary function would be agricultural. Secondly, there would be a political trans transition from an oligarchy ultimately to a monarchy. An oligarchy, of course, is the rule of a few, sort of the, you know, gerontocracy, if you will, the elders running the country. I'll, I'll speak more about that in a second here. And then there will be a theological transition in the sense that there will be a moving from a primarily oral rendering of the Word of God to a primarily written rendering of the Word of God. During the era of the judges, God had established a particular form of government for His people. It is what we would call theocracy, theos, God, the rule of God. The tribal elders were supposed to get the word from the priest, and the priest was to get the word from God, and so it would be a pyramidal in the sense that God ruled through the priests to the elders who ruled the various tribes and then the clan chiefs and so forth down the line. That was the way God had ordained that Israel should be ruled. Because the elders, however, were often reprobate, reprobate, and so sometimes were the priests. And that will, of course, be part of the tragedy that we'll see as we move to the time of Samuel. God enforced his rule, theocratic rule, through the Shofa team. These chosen deliverers who were raised up to meet the need of the hour. Because the elders were not listening to God, and sometimes not even the priests were listening to God. Now what is interesting is you look at this time period, for us who live in America, in, in our complex system of government, to, to realize that Israel at this time had no ongoing national government. Israel had no capital. There was no city that was the capital of Israel. Uh, they had no standing army. They had no diplomatic corps. Just think how cheap government would have been for them in those days. <laughs> Taxes would have been really nothing but the, but the tithes into the storehouse of God to maintain the tabernacle and the, and the priesthood. Is that the biblical form of government? Well, in a way it is. When God is heeded, the best form of government in the world is theocracy. That's what heaven will be. Heaven will be theocracy. <laughs> of course, none of us will be rebels. We'll all be glad for it. But when God is not heeded, theocracy turns into anarchy. And anarchy is the worst form of government because it is no government at all. And this is demonstrated over and over again in the book of Judges because we see the often repeated phrase, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Those of you who have been parents or grandparents may know a, a little series of books that was published many years ago. We haven't been able to find them more recently. Uh, called the Maxi and Mini series. Anybody else know about those besides my wife and I? Anybody? <laughs> you do? A few of you do. Okay. I think it was put out by Moody Press. But it was really neat stories for, read for children. You had, a, you had a Bible story and then you had Maxi and Mini, two little people who, uh, and their friends who had a story that paralleled the Bible story and how you, you put it in action. And one of the stories 
had to do with this whole idea of every man doing what was right in his own eyes. Why should we have to obey law? Why should we have laws at all? And the story goes on about what it would be like, for example, if you came to every intersection there was, there was never a stop sign, never a red light, no control whatsoever. You just did whatever you wanted, you know. And of course the point was the whole society would come to immediate chaos and crash and, you know, it would be destroyed if you don't have law. And that's what happens to Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. One of the biggest problems Russia faced towards the end of the 19th century was the numerous individuals who were part of the socialist movement that was not just located in Russia but was all through Europe. And in Russia there was a particular brand of socialism which was headed up by a man by the name of Michael Bakunin. And Michael Bakunin was a believer in absolute freedom that no one could tell him what to do about anything he wanted to do anytime, anyplace under any circumstance. He did what he pleased. He didn't believe in government, he didn't believe in the church, he didn't believe in marriage, he didn't believe in any of those things because they put restrictions on him. Well, that's what every man does when it's, you know, what he determines is right in his own eyes. And you can understand that that would be chaos. And what happens to Israel every single time is an oppressor comes in. Because as soon as the society breaks into anarchy, an oppressor comes in. That's basically why Hitler rose to power. There was a measure of anarchy. Oh yes, they had a government, but it was a weak government. And a lot of anarchy prevailed in those, that first decade or so after the First World War. And so God would be the one who would allow the oppression to come to wake his people up. The purpose of the book of Judges is not only just to document this period of time. It is a lot more than a history book. Because in the book of Judges, we see demonstrated God's justice, because God brought judgment on apostasy. God will not allow apostasy to prevail. That should speak to us about late 20th century America. There is a massive amount of apostasy in this country, and that could very well bode for the future the fact that oppression is coming. Secondly, the tragic results of Israel's failure to drive out all the Canaanites as God had commanded. If they had driven out the Canaanites, we probably wouldn't even have the book of Judges, at least as it is laid out and describes the events for us. They did not drive out the Canaanites, which God had commanded them to do. They did not excise the cancer, and therefore the body became tragically ill. Thirdly, the disaster that follows when people claim to be God's children, but do not separate themselves from the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is exactly what we see today in our mainline churches and other parts of the country, where the world, the flesh, and the devil has been compromised with. Spiritual integration, I think, is a term I used in the outline there. Spiritual, you know, Integration is a good thing when it comes to like racial integration, but spiritual integration is a bad thing. If by that you mean you bring all the religions together and we'll just have be one big happy family. You worship how you like to, I'll worship how I like to, and, and we're all going to the same place. Bull. The scripture is very clear about that. And it doesn't speak kindly of these Canaanites or their religion. And so today, for someone to come along and say, well, you know, Islam's going the same place we're going, and the Hindus are going the same place, they are the Canaanites. In fact, it is clear 
they are the Canaanites today as much as these people were the Canaanites then. Fourthly, God's incredible mercy and His willingness to deliver His people when they repented from their sin and turned to Him in faith. God is always there. No. The Father of the prodigal son is always there with open arms, but He doesn't gather into His bosom reprobates or people who are in rebellion. He calls them, but when they repent and come to Him, He grasps them in mercy and love. And so one of the things that we're going to see about the book of Judges is an illustration of the long-suffering love of God. It's amazing. We've often said, well, if I were God, this is what I would do. But you and I need to be thankful that none of us is God. From the first chapter and the first verse of the book of Judges through that tenth verse that we read there in the second chapter, we have what is called or what can be called a prologue to the book of Judges. It gives the background information that we need in order to better understand those events that begin with the eleventh verse of the second chapter and move on through the remaining portion of the book. Most of, us, most of us, of course, have been exposed to the book of Judges in the sense that we've heard the story of Gibeon, of, of Gideon. We've heard the story, of course, of Samson and, and the various other deliverers or, or judges. But have we ever studied it sequentially? Have we ever studied it in the sense of this, this cycle of apostasy and oppression and repentance and deliverance and apostasy and oppression and repentance and deliverance and then think of it in terms of how we live today. The God of mercy on Israel is the God of mercy that we come to today too. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we may not become apostate in the sense that we turn our back completely on God and go running full force into the arms of some pagan deity. But whenever we sin, we're giving God the back end back of our hand, in a sense. And God will often bring something into our lives to wake us up, especially if we're persisting in the direction we're going. And then when, he re when we repent, He comes to us and draws us to Himself in deliverance. And so we see this parallel in the book of Judges with our own lives as we proceed through it. I'd like to read the first passage. We don't have time today to develop the first passage, but let me read it. So it'll be in our minds, and next Sunday I'd like for us to begin looking at the details of, um, of this book. Now it came about, after the death of Joshua, that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted to you. And Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into his hands, and they defeated ten thousand men at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled. And they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 
Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so the Lord has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. There are some little rather interesting uh, things in that first passage that in some ways don't fit exactly with our idea of what godly people ought to be doing. And yet, as we look at it in detail, we discover it's an expression in many ways of, uh, of who God is. And particularly as you read the last line of that seventh verse where it says, so they brought him to Jerusalem, what in the world does that mean since Jerusalem does not belong to Israel at that particular time? Uh, one of the things we often associate is the city of Jerusalem with Israel, and, and rightly so. But we need to understand that it was many years after the conquest before Jerusalem was permanently in the hands of Israel. In fact, it was not until the days of David the king. When he captured it and made it the city of David. And it was a perfect choice because he was eliminating a pocket of paganism that still existed and he was choosing a city that was neither Judah nor Ephraim and so he could choose a neutral capital sort of like the United States. Why did we build Washington, D.C.? Because we particularly wanted a capital in a swamp? No, but because we had a, would build a city that was central to our country. S slightly off-center now, of course, but they weren't thinking of expanding clear to Hawaii, you know, uh, in those days. They were just trying to put something in between New York and Charleston, you know, and so that's, that's where we um, ended up. And so Jerusalem would become an, an excellent capital in the center of the country, but it did not belong to Israel for the first several hundred years of their existence in the land of Canaan. And the story of its acquisition, of course, is very fascinating. In, in the next passage, after the one I just read, we'll see how Israel does make an attempt to capture the city, which is, if successful, was only momentarily so, and the Jebusites would still remain as a thorn in the flesh of Israel in the midst of the land. So next week, we'll, we'll begin looking at the book uh, it, with this passage and, and moving on through the first chapter.